turn with me, please, or listen on as I read Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Really, there is an account here that takes us to the end of chapter 7, but there's just no way to take that much text in the sermon. Uh, so we break it up. Perhaps we'll break up even the sermon of, of, uh, of Stephen. But for now, we read simply Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And let us pray together. Holy Father, we thank you once more for the testimony of these early Christians. We have here the testimony of the first martyr. Following the death of Christ, we have the trial and soon the testimony and the death of Stephen. Lord, it is tremendous to read of his, his legacy. We're inspired by it. We're also challenged by it. Uh, it's difficult to imagine being under that kind of pressure, seized by the very men who had killed the Lord Jesus, or at least handed him over to be killed, and then uh, set to the same test only to be killed at their hands, and yet to remain steadfast. These are things which only you can produce in a sinful heart. We ask you that you would, even now, begin to prepare in us that very steadfastness by which we might be able to stand for Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. We read last time in verses 1 through 7 of the beginnings of the office of the deacon. And the, the, the first deacons were selected, seven men, Stephen, uh, one, of, one of them. And in verse 7 of the church resuming her ministry, uh, mightily, powerfully, unhindered, the apostles were able once again to do their work. Uh, in fact, chapter 6, verse 7 is one of six great summary statements in Acts. Now, that's something I've been pointing out that Luke likes to pause and reflect and summarize and then particularize. So he speaks general, then particular. Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. He, he pauses at critical junctures. He summarizes and then and then the narrative races on. As I say, there is six beginning at this one, uh, though, though I have to say on some level, I question that traditional uh, way of putting it, because it seems to me some, are, some of those summary statements were in fact found already. What was the critical juncture here? Well, there's a clue in verse 7. Uh, I emphasized last time that the deacons were selected and the result was that the word of God spread and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Stop, but keep reading. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, that's an interesting point. And it turns out that that's the very point that opens up to us a whole controversy uh, that we may have anticipated. In fact, I uh, have been anticipating since 
uh, the earliest days of the apostles' ministry in the temple. The priests were included. The priests were coming into the church. The priests were being converted. In a sense, you could say the religion of the Jews and of the Old Testament was beginning to clash with the religion of the New Testament, as it had begun to do already in the ministry of Jesus. Now it was doing so in the early church. Luke here uh, is pointing, therefore, in verse 7 and beyond, to a growing tension between those still devoted to the temple and those who were beginning to embrace Christianity, even the very priests themselves who ministered in the temple. It's something that is fascinating and in some sense bewildering to see, and I noted this earlier on. It's almost difficult to say this, but it's true, and that is that there was no tension up to this point. When it came to the ministry of the temple and the ministry of the church, that is what was so baffling in a way for us to see very early on that the apostles were at first continuing to observe the rituals of the temple. Is that really what they were doing? Yes, they were. And it took a man, Luke says, like Stephen, a Gentile, to show them the folly of this and for the church to begin to embrace the truth. It didn't take them long, but again and again we see they were, they were figuring it out on the fly. These were men like you and I. And they were formulating their doctrine slowly and gradually. So then, what was this critical juncture that Luke is pointing to here as the priests were coming into the church? The juncture was the expansion of the church beyond Jerusalem into a worldwide mission. Up to this point, uh, her, her, her ministry, her witness, her mission was confined to Jerusalem. But at this point, the church begins to pivot from Jerusalem to worldwide mission, even as Jesus had said that she must in Acts chapter eight, verse or, or chapter one, verse eight. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We're beginning to pivot beyond Jerusalem. That's that's the point. And that's what becomes the focus. But in order to get to the mission to the world, the mission to the Gentiles beyond the Jews. John Stott mentions the foundations of the Gentile mission were laid. That's a good way, I think, of putting it. They don't just immediately go to the Gentile mission, but there is a foundation laying work which becomes the focus of the end of chapter 6 and then the next four chapters, 7, 8, 9, and 10. The foundations were laid by four men, Stott says. First, Stephen who sparked the controversy, chapters 6 and 7. Second, Philip, also one of the deacons, who evangelized the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch, chapter 8. Saul, who is introduced in chapter 8, verse 1, uh, but who really comes into view in chapter 8. Who was Saul? Well, his conversion was essential to his ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles. We need an account of his conversion. Number four, we have Cornelius in chapter 10, the first Gentile converted and brought into the church. Well, having seen that broad picture of where we are at this critical juncture, where we're going, we begin with an, another account of Stephen, and he'll be the focus uh, for at least two sermons. I, I, I can't say uh, how, how many sermons chapter 7 uh, will be. But we begin with him, and as I say, we'll go on to Philip, then Saul, then Cornelius. This is what we read. We begin with another account of the man himself. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. This agrees with uh, verse 
5, which says, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Then go back to chapter uh, 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of faith and power. Isn't that interesting to see? Verse 5 and verse 8. He was full of faith in the Holy Spirit, so also he was full of grace and power. I don't think there's any use in, in trying to say that Luke was saying anything different. To be full of faith is to be full of grace, and to be full of the Holy Spirit is to be full of power. So I doubt, really, that there's much difference between these two descriptions. The only real difference is now Luke tells us what he meant by that in both cases, verse 5 and verse 8. It meant more, it turns out, than uh, the grace and the power to wait on tables, though surely it included that. And it did not exclude it, exclude it. Uh, but it meant that he became part of uh, the evangelistic witness of the church. The apostles up to this point were the focus. Now we have Stephen, a deacon, but he was more than a deacon, clearly. He was also an evangelist. So was Philip. He had a part in the preaching and the witness, uh, the witnessing ministry of the church. He he. he along with the apostles, amazingly, performed signs and wonders, though perhaps not so amazing because of Joel's prophecy, which we read in chapter 2. So many people would do great things, Joel predicted. And so that, that expanded beyond the apostles. Uh, but, but of greater interest than the fact that he, he was able to perform powerful signs was that as he was full of the Spirit, which means that he was full of faith and he was full of grace and he was full of power, that he was a powerful evangelistic witness he was a powerful preacher and uh, like so many preachers after him the preaching of Stephen created a stir it created a controversy it created disputing he got in trouble over it you read the biography and the histories of of so many men and that's what you'll find so my my focus here and, and I really think Luke's focus is not so much on the miracles but on the the teaching or the preaching or the witnessing whatever you want to call it of Stephen. And it seems clear that's the focus of Luke as well, because he speaks of the way in which open debate ensued as a result of what he taught. Then there arose some from what is called uh, the synagogue of the freedmen disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. It's the words of Stephen. That's the focus. And the important thing to see about those words is Though they were disputed, though they were a matter of controversy, as he was full of the Spirit, none were able to refute him, even as Jesus had predicted. In Luke chapter 21, verse 15. And the result of that was that he, like the apostles before him, was called to court. We saw that with Peter and John. We saw it with the apostles. We saw it with Christ. In fact, uh, that's the true parallel. There's striking similarities between the case of Stephen and the, the case of Christ for uh, the hallmark of this event is the hallmark of Jesus uh, arrest and trial. And that is the false witnesses who spoke against him. And interestingly, the report of the false witnesses were very similar. Verses 13 and 14 they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. That's precisely what they were saying, Jesus, as we read earlier. 
Well, the central issue in his preaching and his teaching or his witnessing was twofold, very clearly. The law of Moses and the temple. He was he was saying, they said, let me read it again. He was speaking against the holy place and the law. He was speaking against the temple. He was speaking against the law of Moses. He was telling us, don't observe the customs of Moses. Do you see the church in the temple now at odds? And this conflict was inevitable. There was no way to avoid it. Let us see. These are things that needed to be disputed. This was a controversy which was absolutely necessary and unavoidable. It was something that needed to be subject to open debate. Not just between the Christian preachers and the Jews, but within the church itself. They needed clarity on such issues as the church did on later issues, for instance, following the close of the New Testament canon on that very subject. Debate on uh, the canon of the New Testament scripture. What's the New Testament? Or after that, on the doctrine of the Trinity. The church in a state of controversy. And as as a result of that, the Lord bringing clarity on central issues. And so you see these things go well beyond uh, the early days of the church. The church is always in that sense in a state of controversy and a state of learning. But here, certainly if the church was going to expand beyond Jerusalem, where the temple was physically located, and geographically beyond Israel to the Gentiles, uh, clarity was needed on these issues, the temple and the law. Do you notice the difference instead of people coming into to Jerusalem? And now they were going out from Jerusalem. What a critical uh, pivot in the history of God. But as I say, it seems up to this point eminently, eminently clear that the church lacked clarity on these points. And it took a man like Stephen to bring clarity. And so we find here as we find throughout the Gospels. And all throughout the New Testament, a controversy concerning this question, a question which confronted Christ and his disciples, especially in response to the Jews. And that is and it's a question we still have today. The relation of the old covenant to the new. Or we could put it like this. What changed as a result of Jesus coming into the world and bringing the kingdom of God? Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, what changed? What changed as a result of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit? These were issues the early church was grappling with. In a sense, I would say these are issues that the church is still grappling with today. And so often she lacks clarity. But do you see that this was something that proved costly for the early church? Because the blood of the first martyr was spilled over this. You might not have expected that if you'd never read Acts. But this was the very thing that led the blood of the first martyr to be spilled. But how could the church go on and progress until she had clarity on this point? What was, you say, I'm about to ask a list of questions, and these are questions we're still asking today. And this is why Acts is always relevant. What was the place of the law of Moses in the new dispensation? Does Moses have anything to say to the church today? There are so many Christians who will teach that he doesn't. How were these new converts to feel about the law of Moses? Could we say like David, oh, how I love your law? And then what about the temple? Could there be a church without a temple? How was worship supposed to function? These, you see, were unavoidable questions. 
It's crucially important to note that neither Stephen nor Jesus before him spoke against the law or the temple. You see, that's what they were saying, and that's why they were false witnesses. This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Well, I don't dispute that he was speaking about the holy place and the law, but I do dispute that he was speaking against them or that Jesus before him spoke against them. Nor did he tell the people not to keep the law of Moses. But that's how it seemed to them. Ever since Jesus came, the accusation of the Jews was always the same. They always viewed this new dispensation with hostility as though God sent his son in order to exclude the Jews. When it was they to whom he sent his son. And so there was more than a kernel of truth in what they said. There was indeed an element of tension, to be sure, between the dispensation, the old dispensation and the new. Especially when it was suggested by Jesus and then by Stephen that one would supersede the other, that one would replace the other, that one would fall out of use even as the new came into being and thus rendering the old obsolete. You see, there was no way to say that and not offend the man who was still clinging to the old. But these men, I say again, proved to be false witnesses because they imagined that this was something negative rather than positive. They thought that when Stephen and Jesus said such things, that they were speaking against the law rather than speaking and the temple rather than speaking in favor of them. And because they thought such teaching was based on a lie rather than the truth, so too they were false witnesses. What then was the truth? What did he actually teach Stephen? Well, we don't know. We have their response. We have their accusations. We can imagine from what they were saying about him, what he said. Obviously, chapter 7 will be of great help to us when we see that he responds to them and then he offers the teaching. And that's something I plan to look at in detail, perhaps as I say uh, as I said, under many sermons or all under one, I'm not sure. But let us try from what the Jews are saying about him to assume what he said. The first thing that I would notice that is noteworthy was that he did not merely present the facts of the gospel. But he was expounding them. And I would t- attach very great significance to that. He did not simply present Jesus as Messiah. He did that, but he went beyond that. He expounded, I'm quoting F.F. Bruce here, he expounded the implications of this claim and the debate concerned not whether Jesus was the Messiah, but the implications of that fact, which give us a sense of what he was in fact teaching. He was teaching the implications of the gospel. Let me say this. That that is a necessary task of the preacher. That's what the preacher is called to do. He's not just one who's called to present the facts, but he's called to explain them, to expound them, to teach on the level of implication. And if you do that, well, then I think you could justify two sermons every week for a whole lifetime. But I I hardly wonder what I'd say uh, if I never arrived at the implications of the gospel. This is a necessary task of the preacher. I think you'll agree. That's what Stephen was doing. And again, that's what the controversy centered 
around the implications of the gospel. When you say Jesus is Lord, when you say he's Messiah, what do you mean? What does that actually lead to? One of the things I stressed about Peter's preaching, I would stress here about Stephen, and that is he was involving his hearers in the message of salvation. He was showing them what it meant for them in particular. What would it mean for these Jews and these priests to become Christians? That's the important thing to see. You see, it's one thing to just say Jesus is Lord, and no man can do that but by the Holy Spirit. But, but you've got to go beyond that. You've got to unpack the idea. You've got to uh, make clear in the preaching, and you've got to be clear for yourself what is involved in the claims of the gospel. You see, the gospel is claiming something of you. In fact, the gospel is claiming everything of you. And it will take you a whole, uh, a whole lifetime to see all that it's claimed of you. This was the crucial point the Jews had to grasp. The things that they were clinging to and grasping to. The law of Moses and the temple. Were they willing to become Christians if it meant feeling different about these? And so there's an important principle here. Two important principles under this point. That the gospel needs to be unpacked. It needs to be expounded and explained. The implications of the gospel need to be made plain for the lives of those who embrace it as their salvation. That, I say again, is the task of the preacher. It's what you find throughout the New Testament, not just in the preaching of these men and, and hopefully of myself uh, and, and in all pulpits, but it's, it's what the epistles are. The facts are presented in the gospels. What's the point of going on? Well, the the facts are presented in Acts as well. Why do you have the epistles? The facts need to be explained. And so much of what they're saying uh, deals on the level of implication. What does the gospel actually lead to? That's the first point. Number two, this is equally important to see. This will rarely be popular. This is where you'll get yourself in trouble. This is where controversy begins. That should be clear from what we read here. But it's equally clear, I think, from the history of the church, as well as clear from our own experience. And I'll speak from my own experience here. It's sometimes true that men are content with a generic kind of presentation of the facts of the gospel. That they will tolerate and perhaps accept. But as soon as you begin to apply the teaching, as soon as you begin to explain the significance and the meaning of the facts, that is, as soon as you begin to arrive at doctrine, you get in trouble. People ask for application until you give it. <laughs> then they'll be quick to find fault. That's the inevitable experience of all preachers. I'm glad we can laugh about that, but I hope you appreciate the truth of that as well. The preacher never got in so much trouble as when he applied the teaching to the hearers. That's what was happening to Stephen here. And so we have to take the trouble to work out the implications, which the church was now beginning to do. Only I would notice, sadly, the opposite tendency today. I've been saying that we've got to arrive at doctrine. We've got to arrive at the implications of the gospel. I think, for instance, about Peter in Galatians when Paul had to confront him. You see, it wasn't so much that Peter was denying the gospel with his mouth, but he was by his actions. The very doctrine of justification. Why? Because he wouldn't 
he wouldn't have a meal with Gentiles. He was denying the gospel on the level of implication. So often that's what we do. And again, I say so much of the preaching and so much of the teaching of the New Testament is there to persuade us of the truth on the level of implication. The opposite is true today. If, if in the early days the church was missing the implications of the gospel, now that's true today, an opposite tendency has, a, has arisen nevertheless. We live in days, I wonder if you would agree with this, where every man's favorite idea becomes an implication of the gospel. And thus to oppose his idea, however trivial, is to deny the gospel itself. A man presents his idea on uh, the current political state, you disagree, and he accuses you of what? He accuses you of denying the gospel. That's what passes for, uh, that's what passes for argumentation today. So I would say the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. We're too ready uh, to accuse a man of denying the gospel because he disagreed on a particular implication, which may not have been an implication at all. But come now to the actual teaching. I've, I've spoken of what he was doing in general. He was expounding. He was unfolding. He was unpacking. What was he actually saying? Well, the only way to know or have some sense, assuming that what he said was faithful, and we have every reason to believe that he was, the issue was what he said Jesus said. We have to look at the Gospels, which we've already done. What did Jesus say? And then we can assume that Stephen was faithfully presenting that on these two issues, the temple and the law. Regarding the temple first, let us see that for the Jews, this was the centerpiece of their corporate worship. It was where the glory of God was formally manifested, and, and they thought still was. It's still where the Jew looks for the glory of God to be manifested. Not in the glory of Jesus Christ, in his first and second coming. Not in the powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but in the temple. They're still looking for the temple. I'm sorry to say there are even Christians who believe this, dispensationalists. And the accusation was this. Stevens was denigrating the temple as Jesus had done before him because he said that Jesus would destroy the temple. Do you understand why that was such a controversy? Was there any truth to this? Was it true that Jesus said that he would destroy the temple? Were they false witnesses in claiming that? Well, let us again examine what he actually said in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 12, uh, don't try to turn with me, I have several verses I'm going to. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Mark chapter 13, verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another. That shall not be thrown down. Mark chapter 14 verse 48. Which we already read. I'll read it again. We heard him say. I will destroy this temple made with hands. That's what we just read that he said. And within three days I will build. Another made without hands. Well you have to go to John chapter 2. To see him actually say that part. I'll build another. But he did say that it turns out. We read. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, it seems clear on balance that the Jews were right on one basic point. The temple would be destroyed. Jesus had predicted it. 
And it actually happened not too long after this. That wasn't the issue. It wasn't whether Jesus had said that. He had said it. That's not what made them false witnesses. He predicted the destruction of the temple. But they missed two crucial points, thus making them false witnesses in the end. One was that Jesus did not say this in order to demoralize the Jews. He said it rather to invite them away from the types and shadows into the more solid realities of a better covenant. You notice Jesus never says, I'm against the temple. He never says, uh, he, he, well, he never says I'm against it. I don't know how else to put that. But he says, I'm greater than the temple. That's something very different. And the temple can no longer stand now that I'm here. You see, that's, that's totally different than saying I'm opposed to it. I hate it. I can't stand it. I want to be rid of it. He's saying it has no place now that I've come. Very different. And it was only because the Jews clung to shadows, as sadly I've suggested men are still doing today, whether Jews or dispensationalists, only because they clung to the shadows that they imagined Jesus was their enemy, as well as Stephen. Second, they also missed the clear spiritual significance, which John unpacks. The destruction of the temple, it turns out, was not just the physical temple. It was that, but far more importantly, it was the body of Jesus. And it was that that he would build again when he was raised. Also, Peter. If you read Peter, his, his preaching or his, uh, his writings in his first epistle are full of the language and the imagery of the temple. He says, we're a spiritual house. We're offering spiritual sacrifices to God. What Peter is saying now is now that Jesus has been raised and the spirit has outpoured. And soon in those days, the temple would be torn down that uh, the church becomes the spiritual house of God. It becomes the temple in which spiritual sacrifices of praise are ever offered to God. Now, that was surely the point the church needed to see. The, the spiritual significance which concerned the church itself and the nature of her worship, which I just described from Peter. It would be a spiritual worship, not a worship of the temple, a kind of worship that you could do anywhere in any place. And that was precisely what the church needed to be in order to expand into the whole world rather than be uh, lo uh, limited to one physical location. What about the second point regarding the law? Well, it's easy here, again, to understand the hostility because it was clear that many of the customs of Moses, Jesus was telling his disciples to ignore. Verse 14, we read, not just verse 13, he was speaking against the law in the holy place. But we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will, will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. He'll change the customs. He'll tell us to ignore them and so on. And what I'm saying is that Jesus was telling his disciples, in some cases, to do so, to ignore the customs of Moses. After all, Jesus says in the Gospels, could you put new wine into old, into old wineskins? And it was clear that the church, or the apostles rather, would uh, later present the same truths to the church. You remember what happens in Acts chapter 15. Here was one of the customs of Moses. Certain men came down from Judea and taught their brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And you know what they said? You don't need to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. 
In fact, Paul will say in, 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 if, in um, Galatians, if you submit to circumcision as your salvation, you do not know Christ. You've fallen from grace. You've missed the gospel. Yes, certain customs they were not to keep. They were told explicitly not to. Indeed, as I was just saying from Galatians, if you, if you went home and read Galatians as an example of what I'm saying, you would realize that to keep them would be to acknowledge on the level of implication that one had radically failed to recognize the new things God was doing in the church. The man who says he's a Christian but he still lives like a Jew has no clue what these new wineskins and this new wine are. But it's important to recognize two things here. Once again, one is that Jesus and the apostles and Stephen after uh, them were concerned only with the customs of Moses bound up with the temple itself. That is the ceremonial law. Do you see how the points come together? The temple and the law were bound together. When you do away with the temple, you do away with its customs, its ceremonies, its rituals, its laws, inevitably. But second, with regard to the moral law, and I trust you are familiar with the distinction between the ceremonial and the moral law. The ceremonial laws had to do with the temple. The moral law had to do with the Ten Commandments. We never get the slightest indication anywhere in the ministry of Jesus or anywhere in the teaching of the apostles that there was even the slightest suggestion that these things were not to be kept. And it was with regard to the moral law that Jesus states that I did not come to abolish but to fulfill the law. What law? The law of Moses. And if you go on to keep reading the rest of of Matthew chapter 5, what you will see is a series of expositions of what? Of the Ten Commandments. He he begins with the Sixth Commandment and he goes on, or or the Fifth, uh, let's see. Thou shalt not murder. That's the sixth commandment. He begins with the sixth commandment and he goes on to expound many others in Matthew chapter five. What is he doing? He's not abolishing the law. He's fulfilling. Uh, I once heard it put like this. The, the law is a glass and he was filling it up to the full. It had some water in it, but he filled it up. He showed us the fullness of the law. He wasn't emptying the cup. He was filling it up. Now we could see the true purpose, the true contents of the law through the teaching of Jesus. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And as we go on from him to the apostles and we read the the epistles, we find that the moral law is upheld in every way. It is unpacked, it is explained, uh, it, it, it is taught. But the fact that Jesus had to say this, the fact that so early on in his ministry he had to make clear that he wasn't doing this, that he wasn't abolishing the law, tells us that that is how he was viewed. Even in the earliest days, he was viewed with suspicion. The Jews thought that Jesus came not only to destroy the temple, but to overturn the law, which he plainly said that he did not. In fact, he came to fulfill it. And so the reality is, taking it all together, was that Jesus, now I'm speaking more broadly, Jesus did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That's how we have to view the relation between the old And the new he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill only sometimes the work of fulfilling looked a lot like abolishing even to us. But that was not his fundamental posture towards the Old Testament dispensation, nor is it to be ours. And this puts even those things which pass away, such as the temple and its laws and its worship into a positive rather 
than a negative light. For they were the very things that anticipated his coming. And this was their glory. Jesus didn't speak against them. I do not speak against them. Even as he said, uh, the, the, the whole temple, every stone of it will be thrown down. Praise God. That's a glorious thing to say. But I'm not speaking against it. I'm not glorying simply in the overthrow of the thing itself. I'm, gl- I'm glorying in the thing that came after it. The thing that replaced it. Something better. Something more solid. Something more spiritual. That is Jesus Christ and his body, the church. Yes, that was their glory. It was that these became the very things in the old dispensation that anticipated the coming of Christ. And if only the Jews had seen that, they would have rejoiced in the coming of Christ. And they would have gladly let go of the shadows when the reality had come. But because they clung to shadows, as still today they do, they miss the very glory of the things to which they pointed. And they will always view the reality in hostility to the shadow. What's the main takeaway for us today as New Testament Christians? I know we don't think of ourselves like this, but have you ever thought of yourself as a Gentile and not a Jew? I don't see a single Jew in front of me. There's no connection to Judaism here in this room. We're all Gentiles. We're all about as far away as a man could possibly be from Jerusalem, has that ever struck you? Have you ever been amazed at that thought? You see, I think the main takeaway here, as we find these early Christians grappling over this and even dying for it, is that we owe our place in the church to these men. Have you ever thought of that? That Jesus Christ died on the cross, he went to the Father, he sent out his spirit, and he equipped these men to bring the gospel to you so that you might be saved. So as Paul says, you might be grafted in, even as the Jews, the natural branch, were cut out. We owe our place in the church to these men. Do you ever wonder at that fact? Do you ever read the Old Testament and wonder that now I, a Gentile, should be saved? Now I should have a place. Now I should be called a son and a child of Abraham. Do you marvel, that is, at the grace which saves you? Have you looked at what the Lord is doing and said, it's marvelous in my eyes. The gospel should come even to me. And that Christ should be gathering people unto himself even today. Do you understand, beloved, the lengths to which God has gone to include you, a Gentile sinner? Amen. Let us come now to praise our God in response to his word by standing together and singing hymn 433. Please stand.